Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth and faithfulness that you have expressed in this word, that you have given us a, a, a rock support, both the promises of your grace and also the uh, words that you have told us to do and accomplish, the revelation of your holy and righteous character uh, in your law. We pray that you would bless this time of instruction, that we would be taught by your word and the truth that is revealed, and that we would understand your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today in our series on the Westminster Confession of Faith, we come to chapter 19 of the Law of God, and you can follow along in the Confession of Faith if you have the hymnal, it's in the back of the hymnal, page 859, page 859, and there are seven articles in this chapter, and there's a lot in them. And we could spend more than one Sunday on this, but if you remember, maybe less than a year ago, I did spend more than one week on this chapter. Uh, We went through it in about three or four weeks, I think four weeks. So if you want more detail on this Confession of Faith, uh, you can go back to that series on Sermon Audio or on our website, uh, or of course we can talk about it afterwards as well. But today I'm going to try to cover it in one Sunday of the Law of God. And let me begin by reading Article 1. God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. So we begin, as we often do, in the garden. Before man fell, God revealed the moral law. That's what it's going to be called. This law that's given to Adam at the very beginning um, gives him the moral law, and he has ability and power to keep it. God created man in his image, so he was, he was righteous. He reflected the holy character of God. This law was, we might say, natural to him. Uh, you got the, the law and man's nature accorded uh, at the beginning, and it promised Uh, It was a covenant of works. It was given to him as a covenant of works. It promised life if you obey God and death if you disobey God. And in addition to the the, the moral law or as as a special unique part of it, there was a tree as well that was specially forbidden to Adam and Eve. Uh, But of course, they also weren't supposed to murder. They also weren't supposed to, you know, commit any other sin uh, that would have violated the holy nature of of God. And so this law did not have a place for forgiveness. Uh, it, it simply commanded what was right and forbade which was wrong, bound them to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, which is what they owed by right, because God was the creator and had brought them into existence, and not only that, but lavished upon them so many good things. But we didn't stay there for very long. So let's go on to Article 2. This law, after his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness and, as such, was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai 
in Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the first four commandments containing our duty toward God and the other six our duty to man. And so man fell uh, into an estate of sin and misery, but the law did not fall. The law continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness. Even though that covenant of works was broken, the law continued to uh, perfectly reveal the will of God, what was right and just, what he had commanded. And so, not as a covenant of works, but as a perfect rule of righteousness, it was republished, uh, it was delivered again, it was revealed in the tablets of stone on Mount Sinai. Um, and was delivered in the Ten Commandments. Uh, that's uh, a summary of this moral law. It's uh, We call it moral law. This is referring to an unchanging standard of right and wrong. It's based upon the holy character of God and the way he designed the world. Uh, so it's in the nature of things, uh, even if man doesn't uh, sometimes suppresses uh, his knowledge of it. And uh, like I said, it was republished in the Mosaic Covenant, Uh, The covenant of works was not republished in the Mosaic Covenant. That's what some people would claim. But the law itself was in in all three of its uses, which will come uh, down to the uses of the law. But it it convicted man of sin and his need for a savior, which the law also in the ceremonial law would supply and sacrifices pointing to Christ. Uh, It would restrain uh, evil doing within society. But it's probably its principal use was as a rule for the redeemed because the Ten Commandments is in the context of the covenant of grace. It begins by saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This is how you ought to live, therefore, because I am now the Lord thy God. And so the moral law is uh, summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Notice that the law that condemned us is the same law that we return to now to show our love and gratitude to God. Um, it's, it's the same law, even though it, it gains a new uh, function, as it were, uh, among the redeemed. Now, it's sum- summarily comprehended or summarized. The, the, the Ten Commandments state uh, principles that are then expanded upon and explained throughout the rest of Scripture. You know, you have do not kill, but the rest of Scripture helps us to understand what do not kill means, right? Does it mean do not kill animals? It's referring to people, right? For humans. Um, There's certain application, perhaps, we should be merciful to animals, not unnecessarily cruel, but but it's particularly referring to humans. Uh, Is it okay to to kill in the context of public justice when a crime deserves that? Yes, so there are times where it's appropriate, even by God's commands, to, uh, in the case of public justice or necessary defense or lawful war. But uh, it doesn't only refer to not killing, but it also refers to not being negligent to preserve life. You know, you need to, if you have entertainment and people on the roof of your house, as they did in ancient Israel, you should put a fence around the roof so that you keep people from falling off. You know, so there's a lot of, prince, a lot of applications of that law, but it's summarized here in the statement, thou shalt not kill. And so these commandments reach to the inner man, to your thoughts. You know, don't hate your brother and, and call, you know, degrade him by reviling him. Uh, it's another application of the sixth commandment. You know, to your thoughts, your words, and deeds, and they bind the, the whole man to full conformity. And so this 
this law was uh, delivered again, and we have it in the Ten Commandments. Now, Ten Commandments are not the only uh, laws that were given on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. Um, The next article of this chapter speaks of the ceremonial law in Article 3. Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel, as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. And so, ceremonial laws... We're talking about the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament given to Israel, and they're given to Israel as a church under age. That concept of being under age comes from Galatians, where Paul talks about the Old Testament people of God being like a, a son, an heir is when he is under age, when he is a child. He's similar to a servant in the household. Um, and, but when he grows to a greater maturity, he becomes you know, one who inherits, and he's different than the slave or the servant. Um, the church in the Old Testament was indeed the heir. It was you know, God's children, but they were, as it were, under age and under uh, more uh, of these, well, under these ceremonial laws uh, that would direct them, like a guardian would direct the child uh, to Christ. And so <clears throat> there were typical ordinances. Now, does anyone know what the what the use of typical here in this phrase is? Typical ordinances? It's not how we typically use that word. Types, yes, yes. It's not referring to typical like normal. It's referring to types, like types and shadows, you know, things that have an anti-type, things that resemble something else. We might call them symbolic ordinances. Um, They were types or shadows and symbols. They pointed to greater realities. That's how Paul speaks of them in in Colossians, for example, as shadows of things to come, uh, the body of which is Christ. Uh, What were some of the typical ordinances? What are some of the ceremonial laws that prefigured Christ and his work? Right, right. The, the shedding of blood and the unblemished sacrifice, all the, uh, the laws about sacrifices and especially its role in atonement for, for sins, pointing to the death of Christ as our sacrifice. Uh, we might think of the, the feasts of the Old Testament, which also, of course, usually, you, uh, sacrifices were usually part of that, but uh, how they also pointed to Christ's work, what he would accomplish, the, the tabernacle as a symbol of the heavenly holy place, uh, the priesthood, Levitical priesthood pointing to Christ the priest. Um, all of these demonstrated the need for Christ. That's part of what Hebrews argues. Not only do they show Christ and God's provision of salvation through him, but they also, by the repetition of these uh, sacrifices showed that they were insufficient of themselves and that God's people were sinful and needed to be purified, needed to be cleansed, needed to be forgiven. Um, they also held forth instructions of moral duties. 
For example, there was the cleansing out of the leaven at Passover, which Paul applies to cleansing out bitterness and malice you know, from the church, uh, the old leaven of Egypt, uh, the leaven of hypocrisy and error. There's the system of ritual defilement and purity that symbolized the importance of moral purity and holiness. So again, these are symbolic ordinances that uh, referred to moral duties, that the moral duties still apply, but the ritual system, the symbolic uh, laws uh, were abrogated, especially since a lot of them uh, also referred to the division of Israel from the nations, uh, that there was this wall erected by the ceremonial laws between uh, the people of Israel, not an impenetrable law, uh, wall, you know, people could, could join in and, and partake of the feast, being circumcised, but still setting it apart as an earthly nation from the rest of the nations. And this was also torn down uh, by Christ, that the gospel would go out to all the world. And so these ceremonial laws are abrogated so that they are no longer kept uh, the way that they were in the Old Testament because the prefigured Christ has come and done his work of redemption. Uh, The church has come of age now and with a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So there's been a a new covenant administration set that befits the the time in which we live now. And the new covenant church is international, unlike the church in the old covenant. And so uh, these are relevant still, profitable for instruction, uh, but abrogated as far as their binding uh, to observance. Um, any questions so far on moral law, which we'll get back to, and ceremonial law? Let's go on to the next article then. <clears throat> to them also, so we're talking about Israel still, to them also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the states of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. Now we're talking about the judicial laws given to Israel in the Old Testament, not as a church underage, but as a body politic, because they were both. They were both a church, and they were a uh, commonwealth, a republic, a, a kingdom, depending on what time we're talking about. They were a state. And they have expired. It's a little different word than abrogated. Uh, but they have expired because the original context for which they were given no longer exists. But they continue to oblige nations to conform to them as far as their general equity requires. Um, That is, to apply them today, one must discern what was grounded in the unique position of ancient Israel and what was grounded in the moral law. What was unique to their circumstances, their situation, um, and what uh, is an application of the moral law, which you know continues to be binding. Uh, one uh, theologian, Johannes Piscator, who was influential among the men at the Westminster Assembly, put it this way: "The magistrate is obliged to those judi- judicial laws which teach concerning matters which are immutable and universally applicable to all nations." but not to those which teach concerning matters which are mutable and peculiar to the Jewish or Israelite nations for the times when those governments remained in existence. And so, like any 
in some respects, Israel was like any other nation. They needed a government. And that government, in some respects, fulfilled the same role that our government is supposed to fulfill. You know, to be a minister of God, to execute justice, to administer his wrath on the evildoer, to protect and, and bless the, the, the law-abiding, the, the, the citizen who is innocent and doing well. Um, and God gave Israel its laws that it might be a model of justice and righteousness. He says, this will be your wisdom in the sight of the peoples when you observe this law, not, oh, all the peoples will think, what a harsh master you have by all these cruel and unusual punishments that have been administered in your law. That's typically how people, even Christians, kind of treat the judicial laws. Like, oh, this was because God was really angry with Israel and gave them all these horrible laws. Uh, no, these were just laws, good laws. Sometimes we misunderstand them, and that's where our misconception comes in. Um, but every crime received a just reward, as Hebrews says. Um, so Piscator goes on to describe what, what things are common to all nations. Things common to all nations, that is, which befall all and are immutable with respect to their own nature and merits, are moral offenses, that is, against the Decalogue, such as murder, adultery, theft, seduction from the true God, blasphemy, and smiting of parents. Um, now there are, so the, those are offenses, you know, that, that continue to uh, be similar today. But there's two sources of discontinuity in applying them today. If you take a judicial law, you're wondering how might this apply today, there's both redemptive historical differences between Israel and, and other nations in the fact that Israel was a special nation. And then also there's situational differences, like technology can be different cultural context can be different, uh, aggravating or mitigating circumstances in a particular case. In, those second, in that second category, that could have been true even within the Old Testament. Laws are given to Moses. Situation might be different during the time of Ezra. Even within the Old Testament, they would have had to take a case law in which the Bible proposes a case and settles it, and then how does that apply to my situation? Even in the Old Testament, they should have realized the law about not muzzling the ox while it treads out the grain should teach us to pay our laborers that work for us. That wasn't anything unique about the New Testament that, you know, oh, now we should pay our laborers. So even in the Old Testament, there should have been wisdom in applying case laws to multiple circumstances. And then there's also the fact that Israel was unique as, at the time, the entire covenant people and kingdom of God. Uh, some of its laws depended upon the Levitical system. Some of them regarded the land, which had a special significance. So there are laws regarding tribal inheritance, uh, the test for adultery, the Sabbath year, and the year of Jubilee, um, specifying certain cities of refuge, uh, the laws regarding the inheritance of the Levites. Uh, so when we're talking about discontinuity, these are some of the things we're saying, do not bind nations today, uh, because these... Uh, were fitted the situation of Israel. Any questions on the judicial law or judicial laws, plural? All right, we're doing pretty good here. Uh, we have a couple articles left. So, what are the three categories of, of law that we've talked about? Alfred, do you, do you remember? Thomas, do you remember? Yes, yes. The moral law, 
and then also the judicial laws, the old, or ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, judicial laws of the Old Testament. All right, Article 5. The moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it, neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. So the authority of the moral law abides and is universal, binds all to obey it, is unchanging. Not only because the matter itself is just, but because it has the authority of God, the creator, behind it. All people must obey God. That doesn't change. The New Testament continues to appeal to the Old Testament law, uh, to the moral law. Paul says, children, obey your parents, for this is right. And then he quotes the fifth commandment and and, uh, quotes that as uh, binding upon children in the New Testament. Um, uh, Jesus quotes, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself from the Old Testament uh, in explaining uh, the greatest commandment. So the moral law continues to be abiding. Even believers are not freed from an obligation to the moral law. We still ought to obey it. We're in one sense not under the law, and in another sense, we are under the law. What sense are we not under the law? I mean, the Bible says we're not under the law, so there's definitely an important way in which we're not under the law. Yes, yes. Uh, we're not under it as a covenant of works to be, to be justified by it or condemned by it. We're not under the law uh, in that sense. We are under its authority, you know, that it is still a rule of life. In fact, Christ in the gospel strengthens our obligation to it. You know, is Christ not your king? Is God not your father? Do they not have the same law? Are you not therefore under it? We have greater knowledge of it now, greater understanding, greater ability to keep it. How much more should we keep God's law and delight in it? Now, there's a real long article here on the usefulness of God's law. Let me go ahead and read that. Article 6. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives. So as examining themselves hereby, thereby they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight to the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve, and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The promises of it in like manner show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, although not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works. 
so as a man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourageth to the one and deterreth from the other, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. That's a very lengthy uh, statement, partially because people will dispute some of these things. Um, People would say, well, if you do something because the law tells you to do so, or if you don't do something because the law tells you not to do so, then you must be under law and not under grace, and therefore not saved. That's the kind of arguments that they were conflicting against, and you still will come across forms of antinomianism uh, to date. But they're saying true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works, but it's still of great use to them and to others in a variety of ways. It's a rule of life informing everyone of the will of God and their duty. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly. As Psalm 119, 4 through 5 says to God, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. What what really matters? Not circumcision, you could go either way on that, but keeping the commandments of God. That is what's important. Um, It also convicts and reveals our need for salvation. Reveals our sin um, so that we're convicted, humiliated, uh, you know, humbled, and hate sin, see our need of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. Uh, Romans 3 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so... That's for the unbeliever, so that they might be saved, but also for the believer, that we might you know, continue to trust in Christ and be grateful for what he has done for us. It also has unique relevance to the regenerate for their sanctification, to restrain their corruptions, to encourage them to do good, Notice, for the regenerate, it doesn't only serve as a guide to direct you in the way which you ought to now go, you know, to manifest your love and gratitude to God, not to earn your salvation, but to love the Lord. It not only shows you the way, but it also spurs you on to do so. Uh, it, uh, It is to encourage you in that way, uh, as well as to direct you there. Psalm 119, again, 104. 101, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Um, The law is uniquely useful to the regenerate for our sanctification. And even the threats and promises of the law are useful. Uh, It's very careful to say here, you know, your sins as a believer continue to deserve the things that are cursed, uh, the curses of the law. And that should show you sin in its true light. 
and therefore teach you to turn away from it, not as if you're going to suffer those curses, but because they show you how, how much God hates those sins. Uh, likewise, and even in this life, you might receive some of these things not as punishments for your sins, but chastisement uh, as God directs you back to his word. Similarly, with the promises, you don't earn these promises. You know, you're not receiving them according to the covenant of works, but they show how much God delights and is pleased with these things, and we want to love him, serve him. And uh, they also show what we might expect upon the performance thereof. You know, as a gift of his grace, not as a uh, reward due by the covenant of works as wages. Uh, but God graciously as a father can still give good gifts to his children um, for even their imperfect but sincere obedience. And so a man's doing good and refraining from evil because the law encourages to the one and deters from the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. Oh, sorry, there's one more article. Turn the book over already. There's Article 7, which is a short one. Neither are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it, the spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. And so we have here the, the last part, the law is not contrary to the grace of the gospel, rather they comply together because the gospel and the grace of the gospel uh, in it enables us to keep the law, that the law gets written upon our hearts through God's grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so these things work together, uh, showing our need for the gospel and the gospel bringing us back to now keep the law not as something hostile to us, but rather something that is good for us and a light for our way. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, saving us out of the danger in which we were in. We thank you for providing a way of salvation for us who have sinned and who have fallen short of your glory, who have not lived in accord with your design for us and your intention for us. We pray that by your spirit, the grace of the gospel, that uh, we would more and more delight in your ways, you would direct us in your paths, that we might keep your commandments, and that this would be our wisdom in the sight of the peoples, that they would see your ways and your grace at work and give glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.